0: Hello and welcome to Room for Thought. I'm Douglas Carswell and my guest today
1: is Toby Young. Toby, welcome. Thank you. You're an author, a journalist, a key campaigner in the the free schools movement, and I want to ask you all about that today. I I want to talk to you a bit about uh, Brexit as well, a bit about the state of politics, one or two questions about the the Tory leadership, Mm -hmm. but I also really want to get your thoughts as we talk today about what you might call the the new left, um, we start to see a, a revival of ideas that we had assumed were um, ancient history, mm-hmm. we see it in university campuses, we start to see it in broadcasting, and we start to see this sort of quite aggressive new left mm-hmm. mob, and I, I, I know you've had some first-hand <laughs> experience of this, and I, I really want to uh, dig down into some of the causes and some of the wider explanations as to why it is that we're starting to see this, this new radical leftism and this, this climate of, of uh, intellectual intolerance. Mm-hmm. But before any of that, I wanted to talk to you about um, your book, um,
0: how to how to lose friends and alienate people. Tell us a bit about it. And well it was um, it was an account of my adventures in New York in the mid nineties. Um, I I started this magazine with Julie Birchell and Cosmo Lemerson called The Modern Review mm-hmm. um, in ninety one and it was intellectuals and academics writing long, scholarly, footnoted essays about things like Star Trek and Madonna and Arnold Schwarzenegger. We called it Low Culture for High brands. And that doesn't sound particularly original today. That sounds like almost every um, uh, Sunday newspaper. But it was trailblazing at the time. But at the time it was, uh, it, it was fairly innovative. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it lasted for four years. It was a success d'estime. It wasn't a commercial success. And Graydon Carter, the editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair, was a fan. The Modern Review. So when it went belly up, he invited me to come work for him uh, at Vanity Fair um, uh, in New York. And um, I went over there, you know, imagining that I was going to follow in the footsteps of other. British journalists who kind of taken Manhattan, like you know Tina Brown and various <laughs> others, um, and, uh, but actually the land of opportunity for me turned into the land of the unreturned phone call. Um, <laughs> I, 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 my, but it's very very funny. I, 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 I did think that um, you know I, I, was, I was saying goodbye to the old country and making a new life for myself <laughs> in the new world, and uh, came back after five years with my tail or rather between my legs. Um, what was it like seeing it turn into a film? Ah, uh, it, um, it was actually it was, it was exciting. Um, uh, I got, I I, 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 was a little overexcited to be honest. Um, I, I remember going down to the set on the first day of principal photography and seeing Kirsten Dunst, um, uh, waiting to film a scene. She played um, the love interest of the central character in the film, yeah. uh, played and, by and Simon the g- Pegg but Based on Simon me, Pegg
1: but was a dude. He, I mean, he was kind of you know he was, he was yeah he was, cool was, I, I uh, yeah he's or a ma-
0: he's a major league. Hollywood. I think at the time he was Britain's number one box office star because. Uh, but let me just finish with the Custin um, uh, Dump story. So I went bounding up to her, and um, and said, "So Custin, have you fallen in love with me yet?" You know, meaning, have you fallen in love with the character that Simon Pegg is playing? He's of based course. on me, and uh, she looked completely horrified. I had no idea who I was. Thought I was some sort of demented stalker. And after that, I was banned from the set. Um, it's very. I
1: you were portrayed on the screen by one of the leading actors of the day. Um, I was portrayed on screen a minor role in a minor film That's all right. by, a, by a poor guy called Paisley Day, who
0: clearly <laughs> drew the short straw at acting school when he was told he had to portray me on screen. But, um, I know, there was a funny um, moment at the Cannes Film Festival um, mm. where I was, I think in ninety. Uh, 90- Seven to promote the film, and um, uh, I think it was 98, and um, I, I suddenly found myself on the other side of the kind of uh, velvet rope. I was there kind of talking to a pack of journalists about the film, um, and most of them were mates of mine. And one of them said, So, Toby, how did you feel about being played by Simon Peck? And I thought I could do the obvious kind of, uh, you know, Hollywood thing of saying how delighted I was and what a great job he'd done, and so on and so forth. Mm. And I said, Well, you know, it's okay, but quite frankly, I would have preferred to be played by Brad Pitt and uh, they all laughed they knew it was a self-deprecating gag and mm. then in the following day's independent diary I think it said uh, Toby Young said at the Cannes Film Festival yesterday he was disappointed to be played by Britain's number one box office star would have preferred Brad Pitt And then a picture of me <laughs> looking like you know Winston Churchill's baby and a picture of Simon I've, 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 Pitt I've never yeah. known journalists
1: to pick up the wrong end of the stick and misrepresent what people say deliberately it's it's
0: bizarre, uh, and I thought well maybe there's a fourth option um, which is to try and set up a school Uh, Locally, which Mm -hmm. we can then send our children to and other people in the community in a similar predicament can send their
1: children to. One of the reasons why I think people are so passionate about free schools and passionately favour is precisely this point. It it allows people who would otherwise not have a good education to have a first-class education, as good as anything in the independent sector. In fact, I looked at some data recently that showed that some of the free schools in London are getting better results than independent schools. And it allows them to do it at the taxpayers' expense. So, in terms of social mobility and allowing people from very humble backgrounds to, to do the best for their children, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's really, it's transforming
0: lives. Yes, uh, and the, I mean, the, the free schools policy, my group, I, I, I read an article for The Observer saying I wanted to create a school mm-hmm. um, in 2009, and I put my email address at the bottom and said I'm, I'm holding a public meeting at my house you know, in a couple of weeks, if you're interested in helping, come along, mm-hmm. and um, about 50 people showed up out of that group about 12, most of whom I'd never met before, formed the steering committee, and within two years we, we managed to get the school open. And it was we were the first group to sign a funding agreement with mm-hmm. Michael Gove, then the Education Secretary, as so it was the first free school to be mm-hmm. greenlit, and we were mm-hmm. one of the first 24 to open. Mm-hmm. Now there are um, uh, over 400, um, and it's been an extraordinarily successful policy. Mm-hmm. Um, free schools now, I think, for two years running, almost certainly for uh, this year too, um, have topped the Progress A league yeah. table for secondary I, schools. I, I followed
1: I Catherine Burble Singh, who Catherine runs. Catherine Burble Singh,
0: who gets her first set of results
1: this year. Yeah, and I think it's the Michaela School she runs. Yes. And I mean, some of the things she says are just extraordinary. I mean, it's it's a life changing opportunity. Children yeah. are getting a better education than they would have at the best.
0: Yes, I mean, I, I think that that is uh, of the the very best preschools. Yeah. That's unquestionably true. I mean, the yeah. the the animating idea behind. Um, the school that I helped set up, is that we wanted all children to have the kind of education that children at Eton and Westminster around the corner from here were able to pay for, that children from all walks of life and have all abilities. So
1: everyone can have the kind of education that at the moment only rich families can afford. That's I mean, you can see why people are passionately in favour, but at the same time, I think we have to acknowledge there's a a passion, a vitriol, if you like, the other way. Talk a bit about that. Why is it that if you're doing something that's so good, that's allowing a single mom in a housing estate yes. to give her son and daughter an education comparable with anything in the private sector, why are some people so vitriolically against it? Well, that, that was a, a real eye
0: for me, Douglas. So um, it, I, when I embarked on this particular journey, I thought, well, for the first time in my life, really, uh, I'm doing something genuinely worthwhile with real social redeeming virtues, mm. something genuinely civic-minded, public-spirited. And I expected to just be, to, to bathe in the warm glow of everyone's approval. And it was, an, it was an extraordinary amount of work. It was two years of working 70, 80 hours a week, unpaid, overcoming obstacle after obstacle, engaging in unbe- an unbelievable series of committee meetings and mm. negotiations to get the thing set up. And I expected, you know, I expected everyone to think, wow. Toby used to be, this frivolous, superficial, celebrity journalist obsessed with fame, and look, he's now doing something really important. Let, 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 let's let's pat him on the back. Yeah. And actually, on the contrary, never have I been met with more hostility than when I tried to do something that I thought was genuinely civic-minded it's, and worthwhile. It's
1: almost as if some people, perhaps people in some local authorities, perhaps some people who work in the education sector... Deeply resent the idea that people should live their lives on on their terms, and do what's best for for their children. It's almost as if by by doing that, you're, you're offending their notion of of
0: of, of what's right. They yeah. they almost think that they know better than than parents do. Well, it was it was it was, it was, a, it was an odd combination of things. I think it was partly a territorial uh, impulse. So mm-hmm. the you know the 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 liberal left think that. Um, providing public education like other public services that's their job yeah and anyone from outside their world who tries to do it is encroaching on their territory so they become Mm. incredibly ferociously defensive and aggressive about that Mm. i think also there was um there was this suspicion that the free schools policy was a, a, a trojan horse for privatization of our public education system and that there was, and that, and that the uh, charities that were set up to create free schools, just like the charities set up to create academies, which was originally a Labour Party policy, uh, would eventually be transformed into these kind of money-making companies, and these bandits would kind of make out. I mean, it's it's this this often you, you encounter this suspicion that people like me are in it for the money. We're conservatives, so we must be motivated by a desire to Do line our true? pockets. Do you think that's true? Do you think that People genuinely think that, or do you think they
1: attribute those motives to you because they want to think badly of you? Do you think they genuinely think that you're doing this for the money, or or do you think they dislike what you're doing because you're threatening their worldview and therefore they subscribe motives to you in order to justify their own animus?
0: I'm not sure there is an there is a clear cut answer to that question. And I'm not sure if they themselves know. So this came up more recently. I don't want to jump ahead too much, but. Um, when I was being monstered um, uh, by a social justice average mob, when I was appointed to the Office for Students, yeah. which is a new English University's regulator, at the beginning of 2018, uh, Paul Mason, um, he, someone had dug up something I'd written about um, grammar school boys at Oxford in 1987. So this was, um, uh, at the time, 31 years earlier. I mean, it was... A, a an example of what I call offense archaeology digging Paul so someone dug up this comment I'd made uh, which was supposedly <laughs> disparaging about uh, grammar school boys at Oxford and um, assumed that that meant i didn't want people from working class backgrounds to go to good universities, even though you know I'd been involved in broadening participation programs when I was at Oxford. I was a member of the Fulbright Commission, which secures bursaries for children from disadvantaged backgrounds to go to US universities. I'd set up four, helped set up four schools, in three of which we give priority to children from disadvantaged backgrounds. I mean, but nonetheless, Paul Mason kind of said that um, I was passionately opposed to working class children going to university, and that's why I've been appointed to the Office for Students. I was the Tory on this new body in order to prevent the object of my, the reason I've been appointed was the Tory Party wanted me on that body to prevent working class children gaining university. And when someone says something like that, you sort of think, well, that's sort of so laughably. Do partisan, they really believe they, that? Do they really yeah. believe that, yeah. or are they just yeah. kind of, are they just reaching uh, around for and I don't think they really. I, know I
1: was going to say classes. because having done a lot to help social mobility and education, you were then given quite a junior role. I mean. You were made a non-executive director of one of the government. The government has hundreds of these bodies and there are thousands of people appointed to them. Your relatively everyday junior appointment, mm-hmm. it was I think a, a part-time post, mm-hmm. you weren't even the, the chair of this organisation, and and yet you your, your appointment, was. it was headline news for days. Yeah,
0: I mean I was one of, as you say, I was one of 15 non-executive directors of um, uh, a regulatory body um, and the way, the way it was um, reacted to by people on the liberal left, it was as though I'd been handed this extraordinarily valuable bauble. And this was an example of the very worst of the Tory chumocracy at work. Mm-hmm. They've handed Toby Young, of all people, this incredible plum. You know, I don't think people realize what's involved in being the non-executive director of, of a regulator. I mean, it, it's not paid. Yeah. You go to an endless series of really <laughs> tedious committee meetings. You do it out of a sense of public duty, not because you're going to reap any financial reward or any It's almost any a bit like doing jury service. It's, it's like doing jury <laughs>
1: service. Um, but... what, what, what I found so disturbing about that whole episode, Toby, is that people who are having a go at you, people who should have known better, conservative backbench MPs, for example, people in public life, media commentators, they... They seem to act not just as though they were trying to stop you being appointed to this role. They wanted to trash your reputation. They wanted to, to, to vilify you. And I can't help thinking that this, again, goes back to this idea, this, this hostility to you because of what you were doing to enhance social mobility and allow ordinary people to have the same privileges that today rich people in education have. Do you, were you, you must have been taken aback by that sheer level of destructive malevolence.
0: I was taken aback by it. I mean, I should have—I um, shouldn't have been, because I'd experienced it, albeit in lesser forms, when uh, trying to get the first free school set up. Um, and uh, you know, everyone leapt on every misstep e- all along the way uh, as a way of trying to discredit both me and, more broadly, the free schools policy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I shouldn't have been surprised, but nonetheless, I was surprised by the sheer scale and of frosty. But at yeah. one point, there was a, a change org petition uh, demanding my scalp, which uh, got uh, something like two hundred um, and twenty-five thousand signatures. And as you say, I wasn't just being attacked by Labour MPs, which you sort of expect, but also by a handful of Conservative <laughs> MPs. And it was the it was the blue on blue attacks, yeah. which were easily the most painful, seeing people break. Ronald Reagan's 11th commandment, thou shalt not attack a fellow Conservative, that was painful.
1: It would be unfair for me to mention particular names, but people like Robert Halfon, who who I think ought to have, frankly, checked in with you before saying some of the things that were said.
0: Yeah, it was... um, I mean, I'm certainly not the only person to be mobbed in this way, um, and and I won't be the last... Um, And it was an an example of something which is increasingly a feature of contemporary Mm. politics, which is someone gets appointed to Mm. a body, um, the offence archaeologists go to work, Mm. they find some things you've said on Twitter or written even Mm. 31 years ago, and then use them to try and discredit you. It's,
1: It's interesting, since then you've written quite a lot about this idea of, of intellectual intolerance. And I know you're, you're not the only person who's, who's faced this sort of, um, this Twitter mob. Um, I, I know that um, leading academics, um, there's one in, at Cambridge who mm-hmm. had published some pretty innocuous um, social science papers suggesting that there was a, a, a political bias in academia. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think he got hounded out. I know that Jordan Peterson was offered a,
0: a, a relatively small visiting role at uh, a leading university and he had that taken away. from him um i i I know that i think it's professor nigel bigger
1: oxford Mm -hmm. university he he had the temerity to suggest that perhaps british imperial history had not been all entirely bad Mm -hmm. and there were maybe some virtues in you know abolishing the slave trade and all all, all the rest of it and again he seemed to be subjected to this incredible sort of outpouring of 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 unpleasantness Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you think explains this, this climate of intolerance in both the academic
0: world but also in, in the media world? Is it,
1: is it purely a consequence of digital technology, the fact that people can say these things and group together to say them?
0: I think it's partly that um, uh, social media, particularly Twitter, have um, enabled a sort of crowdsourced Big Brother to spring up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, what's, what's peculiar about many of these social justice outreach mobs that spring up on social media is that the sorts of people that get involved in them are the sorts of people who 25, 30 years ago would have been concerned about, you know, the surveillance state. But now they're very happy to uh, become these sort of freelance spies mm-hmm. um, uh, doing opposition research on kind of controversial figures completely unpaid mm-hmm. uh, as a sort of collaborative enterprise to try and discredit people. Yeah. Um, what explains it? Well, I think it's partly, I think it's partly um, a social media phenomenon. Uh, but I think in, uh, in most cases, um, it's prompted by a kind of, um, I think, a sort of cult-like religious zeal. Um, what we've seen, I think, is the return of the religious police to the public square. It's interesting you say that, perhaps in a
1: post-religious climate, People need to have a, an ideology that allows them to explain the world. Like all religions, one that puts them at the centre of creation, one that identifies people who don't believe in their dogma as somehow being sinful. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if only people would do what they wanted, the world would be restored to some sort of equilibrium. I, I, I do. I know what you mean. I do see a, a, an almost religious type frenzy in some of this behaviour.
0: Mm. I think it's. I think it's. Uh, uh, it's. It's. I was recently—I recently, I recently uh, reread Richard Hofstadter's um, *The Paranoid Style in American Politics*, um, and it talks about how susceptible people involved in politics, political activists, are to these um, millenarian, apocalyptic, paranoid, mm. conspiratorial, fever dreams that seem to grip their imagination. Yeah and there always is a kind of these things are always floating around just beneath the surface and uh, can pull people down very easily um, and he writes about it as being a feature of the populist right and of populist right wing movements like the populist party like Joseph McCarthy's uh, 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 crusade in yeah. the 1950s the John Birch Society Barry Goldwater Conservatives and so forth but it's now see, it seems to have migrated I've just mm. written about this from the spectator that, that, that kind of conspiratorial slightly Feverish, unhinged, mm. religious-like thinking that you'd associate with kind of Christian cults in the medieval period, like Anabaptists, seems to have migrated from the populist right to mm. uh, to the to the social justice left, and what they are I... now gripped by this what kind of apocalyptic, be... feverish, um, uh, conspiratorial thinking. You see it in the extinction. Rebellion movement. They've now got a kind of, you know, the end of the world is nigh. AOC, I mean, actually believes, and she said this several times, that the world's going to end in 12 years if we don't embrace it, a it's Green New as, Deal.
1: It's almost as if maybe some climate change has become for some people what, what religion used to be. It's a belief system. It allows them to believe that they're part of something bigger than themselves. It gives purpose to their lives. And it, it means that if you you know, if, if if you want to restore the world to equi- equ- equilibrium, you, you make these sacrifices. In in, in, in this case, it's uh, not drinking with plastic straws or, or, or whatever it is. And um, you know, if you don't believe in these dogmas and these doctrines, you, you you're damned. You're, you're you're you know you're you're amoral, immoral.
0: Mm-hmm. It's um, I mean, I think that uh, the point Hofstadter makes in his essay um, is that, uh, which was written in 1964 is that we moderns naively imagined uh, that we'd left behind these cults, these sects, Mm -hmm. that this kind of poisonous uh, 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 catastrophizing Mm -hmm. um, was was a part of our our past, our more primitive, less rational, pre-modern past. But actually, as Christianity and other organised religions have declined across the West, these 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 elements, these kind of uh, potentially quite destructive elements, mm-hmm. have survived. It's like a sort of an ineradicable kind of collection yeah. of memes that can't, you can't you can't get rid of. Just,
1: them. just while we're talking, I've had this thought. We often are told that many of the people who believe in these things are, are, are rationalists. They 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 believe that they you know are, are products of the Enlightenment. But quite often, when you listen to some of the debates conducted on social media, the value of what someone says isn't judged in terms of the merits of what it is that they've said, but but who they are. Mm -hmm. Their gender, their ethnicity, their their heritage. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if we're reverting to this pre-enlightenment, pre-modern idea that you judge people not on the basis of the strength of what they're saying, but on... Their position within this sort of hierarchy, and in this case, the, the hierarchy is a, a hierarchy of, of, of uh, oppression, or mm-hmm. a, a hierarchy of victimhood, or, or, or guilt. Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost it's almost a repudiation of rationalist and like
0: yes. I mean, the, the, there is this. Um, I think uh, I mean, some people refer to the intersectionality cult, um, and uh, it clearly grew out of grievance studies and neo Marxist postmodernism in the academy, um, and. Uh, one of, the, one of the ways in which it manifests as essentially a religious movement, it's been referred to as the Great Awokening, um, <laughs> is, is that, as you say, there is this hostility to reason and logic. Yeah. And if you, confront, if you confront them with you know, empirical data as a way of trying to disprove some of the things they're saying, uh, they won't engage in a rational conversation about that. They'll claim that you're using the tools of white privilege, of white supremacy to try and further oppress the people they're trying to help. People of our
1: generation are familiar how in the mid to late 20th century, there were people who believed in the Marxist ideology, which was that you had a group of workers who were exploited by a a capitalist elite at the top, and you had a sort of bourgeois in the middle. These were in effect sort of collaborators with the capitalists um, in that they, they, they went along with a system that exploited working people. Now, this was shown to be nonsense and societies run in accordance with that ideology weren't great places to be in the 20th century. It's almost as if that Marxist idea has been revived. But instead of talking about workers, you have various types and categories of people who've been exploited. And you've got the patriarchy at the top. Um, and in, in, in serious universities, or what we're encouraged to think of as serious universities, this ideology has taken hold. I mean, I, I, I read Charles Moore. Recently, writing the Spectator, and he quoted an associate professor at Oxford University, an associate history professor. This is Oxford University. This isn't you know um, sort of university I went to. This is a major league university, and the article argues that not Notre Dame, the cathedral in Paris that burnt down, shouldn't be rebuilt. Fair enough. That that's a point of view. Why? Because the author of this piece said the climate change emergency, and. I'm quoting from the article: Many people in the global South, that's Asia and Africa, are staring the collapse of functioning societies in the face, and somehow linking the reconstruction of a medieval cathedral in Paris to climate change. I mean, it's such flawed logic at so many levels. I mean, for a start, you know, Africa is not facing social collapse. African society is booming at the moment. Mm-hmm. Their their GDP um, output. You know, I think Ethiopia is the second fastest growing. Country in the world and, and its GDP has grown, I think, five or six fold since uh, the year 2000. But you read an article like that, or you read an article about an article like that, and it, it, it's so full of dogma mm-hmm. and muddled thinking, you, you, you really do worry about the state of a university that puts someone like that on its
0: payroll. Yes, um, and it's certainly not just at Oxford. Um, I mean, I think it's probably. Um, less of a feature at Oxford than it is at many other universities, mm-hmm. um, but uh, uh, I, think, um, I think there is, there is I mean, w- what's going on when you, when you read an article like that? What is, the, what, is, what is the author trying to convey? I think quite a lot of it is a form of social signalling. Mm-hmm. Um, when, for instance, uh, uh, the, uh, a senior commissioning editor at uh, BBC4 recently stood up at the Edinburgh Television Festival and denounced his own white privilege and said the era of middle-aged white men standing up in front of old buildings and explaining things was over. This man isn't, isn't actually suggesting for a second that he's going to stand down from his job to make way for you know, a young black woman. That's not what he's going to do to tackle white privilege. Um, and what, so what's he really doing? What's he saying? And actually I think what's going on? as with this article that Charles Moore refers to, is it's often a form of social signalling. It's a way for higher whites uh, to differentiate themselves from lower whites. Lower status whites would never engage in racial self-flagellation. You know, The sorts of people who voted for Brexit, who live outside London, who aren't uh, uh, university graduates, they'd never engage in racial self-flagellation. They are proud of who they are and where they come from and their local areas. Uh, so if you if you if you engage in a bit of self-flagellation, if you denounce white privilege from your privileged podium, it's a way of differentiating yourself from them, of advertising your membership of the Brahmin class. Uh, and if the Brahmin, the Brahmin
1: class, like all ruling elites, have this set of beliefs that mean that their club remains its retains its exclusivity. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they're almost behaving like Romanovs and they worry that they may be one day replaced by, by Bolsheviks. It's, yes. it's extraordinary. What, what, do you think, what do you think the way forward is? If we face this leftist, radical, intolerant dogma in, in universities, what
0: do we do about it? Well, um, Nigel Bigger, whom you mentioned earlier, um, held a conference um, in Oxford a few weeks ago um, and got together lots of people, including Noah Carl, the young researcher, fellow who was defenestrated by St Edmunds College, Cambridge, for having um, supposedly breached various uh, sacred taboos by writing about um, intelligence and ethnicity um, and so forth. Um, uh, and we, we discussed, well, what do we do about this? Yeah. You know, intellectual, free, what do we free, do? free speech is under assault uh, across the Anglosphere uh, in, in, in some of our most um, prestigious, you know, leading universities. What can we do about him? Um, and uh, I, I suggested that we might try and do what was successfully done to try and nip the Rhodes Must Fall campaign in the bud when various student protesters were demanding that the statue of Rhodes at Oriel College be pulled down uh, because he was a white supremacist, colonialist and so forth. Um, and uh, initially, Oriel College were quite sympathetic and it looked as though they might bend in response to these protests. What made them see sense? What made them see sense was uh, various rich alumni threatening to withhold their donations to the college unless they ah. nip this in the So button.
1: virtue signalling comes at a price, the virtue signalling
0: In that be case twice. virtue signalling came at a price, and that seemed like, well, maybe that's the way forward. Maybe, yeah. we, should, maybe we should try and create a kind of uh, uh, website or something similar, um, uh, uh, ranking universities according to how well free speech, intellectual freedom mm-hmm. is protected in their walls. And Almost like a trip
1: advisory, but for prospective students. Yeah. And, 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 and
0: Spiked Online do something like this already That's at league table, yeah. um, ranking universities according to how free speech is respected. But, and the idea was that alumni could then refer to this before deciding whether to donate. But Amy Wax, who is a professor at um, Penn Law, she was mobbed a couple of years ago for co-authoring a piece in the Wall Street Journal praising the bourgeois virtues. She was immediately dubbed a kind of white supremacist, was was mobbed, and her particular university, Penn Law, uh, were very unsupported. And, and, uh, And she said, no Toby, that's not gonna work. You can't persuade rich alumni to join a free speech campaign. And she gave three quite persuasive reasons. The first was that often the reason rich folks donate to their alma mater uh, is in order to try and secure preferential treatment for their children or their grandchildren or their nephews and nieces, <laughs> certainly more so in America than here, but nonetheless. Uh, uh, secondly, she said that lots of, lots of these rich white men you would be hoping to enlist in this cause are themselves now woke, and we can talk about how the kind of rich became woke in a second.
1: So woke's become a sort of peacock's tail?
0: Yeah, um, uh, and they, you know, they won't want to risk being branded, you know, uh, far-right or far-right adjacent or alt-right by getting involved in a campaign like this and she said even if they are sympathetic to your cause their wives will be woke and their wives will threaten to withhold sex from them if they get involved in a cause like this so it's hopeless but I, I discussed it afterwards with was much bigger and we thought actually probably isn't as hopeless as all that yeah. uh, but I think uh, I think the way to I think the way forward and I'm writing something about this is for British academics and perhaps some intellectuals and journalists as well um, who are Not all right of centre, but because of their unorthodox views, because they don't um, uh, subscribe to every woke progressive orthodoxy, are in danger of being mobbed by their colleagues, Um, is for them to form a union. We need to unionise. One of the reasons trade unions, in some cases, were set up in the 19th century was to protect the free speech. Of workers, so they could criticise their bosses it's without that, risking being uh, fired. So uh, we set up something like there's one in the US called the National Association of Scholars. That's a classical liberal uh, trade union I mean, for academics and intellectuals and journalists. We need, I think,
1: something if, like if that. If there was UK. a union like this, I would certainly sign up. I mean, I'm I'm I'm, I'm not a, an academic by any means, but I, I had my own experience of this when I stood down as a member of parliament. Uh, a university approached me, or rather, a couple of academics at a uh, uh, well-known London university and said, would I become a, a visiting fellow, right. where I would go and give a lecture, um, I think it was every three weeks for a term, right. simply to talk about politics, and you know, I've written books about the impact of the internet on politics mm. and the rise of insurgent parties. And I, I, I wasn't doing it for the money, I was doing it because I thought it might be quite an interesting thing to do of itself. And um, apparently the proposal got to the head of the department with a a body of people, and they they, they weren't having it. They certainly weren't going to allow um, people um, who aren't out of the front page of the Guardian um, putting forward ideas that might actually challenge some of their orthodoxies. But that's that's minor compared to some of the treatment that that that, that others have had.
0: Noah Carl himself um, wrote a report for the Adam Smith Institute Lacademia, yeah. about um, lacademia, lacademia. It was about the <laughs> not crap It was about the left wing bias in yeah. British universities, particularly in the humanities and the social sciences. I mean, this is a well documented phenomenon in yeah. the United States, where you know in sociology, for instance, registered Democrats outnumber mm-hmm. registered Republicans by a ratio of you know fifty to one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's worse in in, in some other subjects, even worse than that. And here, it's not quite as bad as that, but it's still pretty bad. And and, and you know, people like you just cannot be hired at university because you're right of centre.
1: What I find quite interesting is we we see the march of leftist ideas through academia. We also see it in the media, particularly in this mm-hmm. country. The BBC often produces current affairs content that isn't biased in a partisan sense. Sure, they give equal airtime to the parties, but many of the assumptions behind it Mm. are hostile to the sort of libertarian, free market, classical liberal point of view. There's an underlying assumption behind so much of the output of the Today programme, Channel 4 News, um, Newsnight. And and, and the assumption is that, you know, human affairs are best organised by by design. That, for Mm -hmm. example, you know, if we were to leave the European Union, we would need to have some sort of bureaucratic fiat stipulating what the arrangements should be afterwards. You know, the idea that actually you can um, have good relations with a country without bureaucratic rules governing those relations is often anathema to the people asking the questions. Uh, you see it in publishing as well, where actually a lot of people who perhaps you know get published are published because they're seen as, as fashionable and faddish according to what people in the publishing industry think. They don't necessarily sell that well. No. So it's, it's a sort of cultural elite disease, I think, some of this. Yes, disease. I mean, I think,
0: I think uh, uh, it, it's, it's true that um, uh, what Irving Kristol, I think, called um, the new class have always dominated um, uh, the public sector, um, organisations like the BBC, mm-hmm. certain industries like publishing, the media more broadly. Um, and that's been that's that, that's been a well documented phenomenon that you know that dates back probably hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. There's been a recent development, I think, which is the um, spread of the social justice cult out of grievance studies departments yes. at universities into not just the public sector, the HR departments of leading the, companies, the, the, the HR departments of leading private companies, yeah. including you know global financial services companies. Yeah. And how did that happen? And I think it's partly to do with this sea change on the left that you referred to earlier, uh, which seemed to happen uh, around about 2012, 2013, curiously, just after Obama had been re-elected. Um, and uh, the left stopped caring so much about socio-economic inequality. That was no longer a form of social injustice that they were going to be morally animated by. Much more important was uh, inequality between different identity groups and trying to equalise the power, the wealth, um, the influence of different victim groups. That became their priority. And the interesting thing about that is that whereas before the titans of the private sector uh, were demonised, even even as recently as 2011 with the Occupy protests were demonised as part of the awful, parasitic 1%, uh, now, that, now that the left has become less concerned, less preoccupied with socioeconomic inequality, and, and, and has become much more preoccupied with this inequality between groups, so it enables the private sector to embrace. A social justice agenda because they don't need to worry anymore yeah. about the gap between the highest paid and lowest paid employee or about outsourcing work to sweatshops in Indonesia. All they need to worry about is getting the right balance on their boards and then they can bask in the warm glow of approval of their militant teenage sons and daughters at the breakfast table.
1: What's so worrying about people who don't share that leftist dogma, people who believe in properly liberal societies and free market economics, is that we... We're in danger of being in a situation where it doesn't matter who you vote for if these ideas prevail within the institutions it doesn't matter you know even the Conservative Party mm. in this country is itself susceptible to this way of thinking there have been a number of decisions that ministers have made in office which which are straight out of leftist assumptions in in sociology departments in you know campuses um, it, it seems as if there's no one you can vote for to reverse these ideas if you lose this cultural war. If the institutions are captured by this, mm. this dogma, it doesn't really matter who you vote for. You will end up being governed by a, 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 an interventionist, leftist,
0: Marxist yeah. administration. I, I, I think, I think that, that's why people like you and I, um, who are right of centre and who do dissent from progressive orthodoxy, feel much more beleaguered and cornered. Uh, It's one of the reasons why we're making programmes like this. Absolutely. We couldn't get
1: airtime on the BBC. And
0: I I think it's because, you know, um, uh, as recently as ten years ago, um, the private sector uh, was broadly conservative with a small c, and that served as a counterweight to the left-wing bias in the public sector and in the academy and amongst the new class. Um, Now that the private sector has embraced the social justice cult. Um, uh, there's the, 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 we no longer have that bulwark. And you're right. I mean, the Conservative Party now prides itself on being woke. I mean, there's a leadership election coming up, and I'm sure... We can hear the helicopters, helicopters outside. ...will try and advertise <laughs> yeah. their woke yeah. credentials.
1: Now, here's a, here's a, here's a thought. I, did, you, did you watch the Thatcher documentary, talking about BBC output? In. The BBC have actually gone and done something quite good. They've right. made a, a documentary about Margaret Thatcher that's actually, I think, really quite honest... And I was watching it. It aired quite recently. I was watching um, the first episode, and what struck me was her clarity of thought. Here she is as a, a young um, leader in the making, and she puts her name forward to become the leader of the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party's never had a female leader. They've never had someone as outspoken as her. And what's interesting is that when she's asked questions in a number of different scenarios, by a group of school kids in a TV studio, by a bunch of American businessmen when she's speaking at an event in New York, she talks with a clarity about principle, about what is right, about what is wrong. You, you can understand instantly that there's an underlying philosophy. You may agree with it, you may disagree with it, but there's, there's a substance there. And I, I was watching this documentary and I thought, when's the last time I heard any politician in this country, perhaps with the exception of you know, John MacDonald in the Labour Party, I don't agree with him, but, but he certainly has, has a set of core beliefs. When was the last time you heard mm-hmm. anyone, particularly on the centre-right, in British politics talking with that clarity?
0: Well, there's a huge vacuum in British politics because I think one of, one of the real sources of hope is that um, all these folks... Across the political divide, public and private sector who embrace this kind of woke agenda are completely out of touch and at odds with the general public. Um, you know, if you tell um, a middle-aged white man who is struggling to make ends meet and support his family and secure decent opportunities for his children in a post-industrial town uh, somewhere in the Midlands or the Northeast, that he is privileged in virtue of having a white skin, you know. He ain't going to vote for you, um, and uh, uh, and more and more businesses who embrace the woke agenda we're seeing are beginning to go broke. You know, go woke, go broke. You know we what, see this with various liberal colleges. So sort of is, a cutting edge what, of this cult in the US. So there was a real opportunity what makes for a political leader uh, to 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 uh, uh, harness that um, energy, that, uh, that 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 dispossessed, homeless, working class constituency well, and i hope that, that, that the conservative party uh, finds a leader who can talk to a, that constituency a, a, and, a and who bring be, them on a, board a, and
1: a leader who would be true to what you might call the martin luther king version or vision of
0: an equal yeah. society and i, I remember that, know, that, that, that that if you quote martin luther king's famous dictum that you should judge people absolutely. according to the content of their character rather than the color of their skin Absolutely. Uh, that is now referred to as colorblind racism Quite the extreme. president of the American Sociological Association has written numerous books about colorblind racism and That's that's been his horse he's rode to this eminent position he thinks if you, if you even say that if you claim to be able to ignore the colour of someone's skin and judge them according to the content of their character, that's a form of racism. That's so a microaggression. Mar-
1: Martin Luther King would be regarded by the modern so called progressive movement as alt right. It's <laughs> extraordinary. Quite extraordinary. extraordinary. Now, I want to talk about something that um, is probably of concern to, to, to both of us, and this is to do with, with Brexit. Um, you know, three years ago, there was a referendum. Um, the Leave side won with a majority of over a million. It was close, but it was, you know, it was a, a clear result. And you know, since then, I was talking to an American audience recently over in the States, and I was trying to explain the scale of the failure of the British political class. And I put it to them like this. I said, imagine if after 1776, imagine if after you beat the Brits at the Battle of Yorktown, you drove the Redcoats out of the 13 colonies. Imagine if your political leadership, Ben Franklin, George Washington and the rest, got together and decided, do you know what? Self-government's too complicated. Let's ask George III to take us back. That's in effect what's happening, isn't it? I mean, we voted to leave. We've entrusted Theresa May and the rest of them to get us out. Every major party went into the last general election two years ago saying they would honour the referendum result. We're still in.
0: What's going on? It is, um, it's, it's, uh, I think, a historically unprecedented betrayal of um, democracy. Um, and uh, the political class are currently reaping the whirlwind. And whoever does succeed Theresa May, um, I think, will need to take us out of the European Union in very short order, or the Conservative Party is just, I think, a permanently busted flush.
1: Who do you think might make a, a, a good Prime Minister to take over from
0: Theresa May? I think the two I'd be happiest with uh, would be either Boris Johnson or Michael Gove, but I quite like a cut of Liz Truss's jib as well. What about Dominic Rob? Um, I'm I I, I think uh, I wouldn't mind seeing Dominic Rob in the cabinet, um, but um, I don't think that he would have the political chops to lead a general election campaign effort and successfully defeat a Jeremy Corbyn-led Labour Party. Jeremy Hunt? Uh, less persuaded by Jeremy Hunt. I think that. Uh, if, if the next is going to be credible and is going to win back some of those people who've deserted the Conservative Party for the Brexit party and who are threatening to do that in the next general election, it has to be someone who's always been a committed Brexiteer. It can't be a Johnny-come-lately who originally campaigned for Remain and then decided to campaign for Brexit. It's
1: interesting because you mentioned Michael Gove and Boris Johnson and you mentioned Liz Truss and we talked about a couple of others. I wonder if the first big... Issue in the leadership contest is who's in the cabinet. In other words, who stuck to the May mm. um, car crash to the end versus who who bailed, who got out first. Do
0: you think that's going to be much of a disadvantage to Michael Gove if he's in the cabinet? I think it will. I mean, I think it um, ultimately will prove a disadvantage for Michael Gove. I mean, if the last two uh, are Michael and Boris, um, then clearly Boris will will win. Um, but hopefully, he would then make. Michael, his uh, mm-hmm. chancellor, mm-hmm. or at the very
1: least his home secretary. Do you know what was interesting during the the referendum campaign? I was on that red bus, and there were times during the referendum campaign where I was in close proximity to both Boris and Michael. And if I thought for a moment that the two of them hadn't had the conversation of "What do we do next?" You would've I would have their heads I would have knocked their heads together. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I, I, you know, it, 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 I I hope that whatever happens. The, the the people who understand the vital importance of getting out of the EU I don't just mean for the Tory party's prospects mm. frankly I don't really care too much about that I'm talking about to make sure that you know my 10 my year old daughter in her 20s, 30s and 40s has better life outcomes I think that can only be achieved by leaving the European Union and it's got to be leaving the European Union the right way if we leave the European Union to become a sort of closed border, anti-immigration mm. no free trade Customs union, a high protectionist barrier, taking rules from Europe. Uh, little island. Mm. We're, we're we're not going to be a great place for the kids. No,
0: no like you, I'm a liberal leaver. Um, I and mean, I think the I think whoever wins will have to persuade the conservative membership um, that they are willing to take us out with No Deal. Yeah. They'll say, Well, we'll go back, and I'll I'll try and. They've got go to the union, but we, yeah. we I'll be prepared to leave without a deal, even in the teeth of parliamentary opposition. Yeah. In Theresa May's resignation speech, she made a big issue of compromise and said that unless unless we can strike a compromise, we won't be able to leave the European Union because there isn't a parliamentary majority it's such uh, uh, for something less than a compromise. But actually, as the Institute for Government had pointed yeah. out, a committed Prime Minister could, in the teeth of parliamentary opposition, nonetheless take us out. And I do think that whoever does succeed, Theresa May, will be forced in the end, because I don't think that are going to make any more concessions, to do that and I think they'll do that before calling a general election because if they call a general election when we're still in of then course, the Brexit party will decimate the of Conservative course. party well or I, I think every right.
1: I think when you say decimate decimate means literally a tenth I think a lot more than a tenth of the vote <laughs> Have, would, annihilate
0: if, if, if we haven't left by the time yeah. the next general election and you're approached by the Brexit party to stand as a candidate in Clacton for instance uh, would you do it? I'm not going to put my name on a ballot paper again I've
1: Stood for Parliament and got elected four times. Um, I I actually got to the stage where I just had enough. Um, I'm interested in politics. I would certainly help the Brexit Party at the moment. There, there are lots of people in politics um, in in different parties who who I would willingly help. I'd be very happy to play a role behind the scenes. But I quite like asking the questions rather than answering them. And I'll be honest with you. I I rather feel that all of that time in politics, I I think. I quite often had things that I think the wider audience wanted to hear, and I was unable to ever talk about that. I'd be invited on to talk about, invited on by the BBC to talk about a, a book I'd written about mm-hmm. you know, the impact of the internet on politics and you know, how the internet was going to change the political system and allow insurgent parties. All things that turned out to be, um, in retrospect, um, pretty pretty bang on the money. Mm-hmm. And again and again and again, I would have gotcha journalism thrown at me. And I just got fed up with it. I, I really got fed up with gotcha journalism. And I, I I find that actually, that kind of gotcha journalism that basically dominates the production output of Channel 4 and the BBC, it it, I think, puts people off politics. It's also helped create a sort of toxic atmosphere in politics. And when people say they're fed up with politics, I think actually often they're fed up with the priesthood of pundits who interpret politics through the prism of their own prejudices mm-hmm.
0: yeah. um, and I, I, I like them shot of all that yeah. one of the really encouraging things about the success of the Brexit party in the European elections um, is that uh, the offence archaeologists during the European election campaign were hard at work beavering <laughs> yeah. away, searching for embarrassing incorrect yeah. things that various Brexit party candidates yeah. had said in the hope of discrediting them and um, they made no impact at all I mean if anything they just persuaded people um, uh, to vote for the Brexit party candidates and it was great that Nigel Farage didn't for a second disown any of the people who were
1: mobbed in that way 10 years ago if you wanted to set the political agenda it mattered what the Today programme and Channel 4 News Mm. and Cathy Newman and the Today programme and all the rest now you can talk directly to millions of people and ignore those people Mm -hmm. in fact my advice would be be to the Brexit party indeed to anyone in politics don't ever do set piece interviews with the BBC don't ever 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 go on Channel 4 mm-hmm. they're not interested in allowing you as a candidate to explain to people who might be interested what you think they're more interested in in trying to attack you on the basis of their own preconceptions you know, quite often I would come out of studios particularly the Today programme and I would think that the people asking the questions had had, had had not only just slightly missed the point, mm-hmm. they, were, they were themselves out of touch with the country that I knew and I feel that I represented. As someone, someone I think it was Linton Crosby once said, um, a lot of these journalists, they only ever meet ordinary Britons when they collect their dry cleaning or mm-hmm. order a delivery. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's so true. So I'm, I'm hoping that the Brexit Party, whatever it means for Brexit and whatever it means for the composition of the House of Commons in future, I hope it means the beginning of the end of this, this priesthood of, of pundits. I, mm. I think the country and the political system would be better off without them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I hope you're right. Um, uh, and I hope we do see a sea change that reflects that. I mean, it was the most disappointing thing for me about being um, essentially defenestrated from public life um, last year is that I feel I now know enough about education and I've done enough research, and I've got enough experience under my belt helping to set up Mm -hmm. these four now very successful schools that I know what works. I know how to address underachievement in disadvantaged communities in deprived parts Mm -hmm. of the country. I mean, it's clear that the model which has been successful in America, which has been equally successful... Charter schools, they call it. In America, there are no excuses urban charter schools. Charter schools that combine rigorous behavior management systems with sky-high expectations, uh, wanting to try and get every kid into college. They have longer than average school days, shorter than average holidays. Uh, They have really hard-working, predominantly young staff. In this country, we've added a knowledge-based curriculum to that model. Uh, we see it in schools like Michaela, a yeah. school run by Katherine earlier. Uh, which, uh, which I'm sure is going to knock it out of the park. Uh, the results are coming out. Results, results coming out in August of this year. Uh, and they're just going to be off the charts. We know what works. We, these are the schools yeah. that work. These schools uh, which try and replicate uh, the very best of the private education system and make them available to ordinary people in disadvantaged communities those are the schools that create ladders of opportunity, we know how to solve the problem I feel like I now know how to address the problem of educational underachievement and how to drive improvement in our public education system but I'm not allowed to try and do that now, I'm not allowed to try and use this knowledge uh, to make that change, to try and really make a difference because I've I, been kicked out
1: I, I want to jump back a bit and pick up a couple of themes to, to draw them together, You know, you know, you've made a big contribution to creation of public policy, not by being elected, but by actually going out there and and setting up free schools. Um, We've talked earlier about the difficulties from a sort of radical, revived left and the the, the inertia of of institutions that are hostile to um, free market ideas and Conservative points of view. We talked a little bit about the Conservative Party and the dire straits they're in and the mess they made of Brexit. I wonder if Brexit is going to lead to something even more profound. And that's a realisation that in this country, the people who decide public policy, a little bit like in The Wizard of Oz, we we think of them as these incredibly able, capable, intelligent people with all the facts. Somewhere in Whitehall, there are a group of security experts who are keeping tabs on all the bad guys and making brilliant assessments of of whether or not um, dictators have weapons of mass destruction. Oops, actually, it turns out they don't know what they're talking about. We imagine that there are these great officials in Whitehall who know all the facts about the EU and can go to Brussels and negotiate a really good deal. Whoops, it turns out actually they couldn't negotiate the purchase of a second-hand car without being ripped off. We've come to the point surely with Brexit where we realise that the people at the top of our society politically are actually not just not in possession of any great wisdom or judgment, often their wisdom and their judgment are worse mm-hmm. than that of the people outside mm-hmm. that bubble. In, in a weird way, those within the Whitehall and Westminster bubble make worse decisions precisely because they 're vulnerable to fads and misjudgments and the nonsense they mm-hmm. hear that morning on mm-hmm. the today program uh, Someone put it to me like this: they said that when companies were privatized generation ago, suddenly. When BT was privatised, people realised that half the phone boxes no longer worked. When the water companies were privatised, people suddenly realised that half the water leaked away mm-hmm. through the pipes. Maybe Brexit's a bit like privatisation. We, we now take back control, we put responsibility in Parliament and Whitehall, and we realise we're governed by Muppets, mm-hmm. and that's going to have to change.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, one would hope so. I mean, one would hope that uh, in due course, if everything goes as we want it to go, there will be a big clear out. Hmm. Um, uh, particularly in the civil service but, um, but, but um, uh, the worry is that even with a new political brew uh, committed to um, uh, a much more efficient streamlined approach to policy making informed much more by um, you know, an understanding of systems management proper so, empiricism rather, rather than empiricism, bogus. rather than bogus social justice ideological mumbo jumbo um, uh, but the problem is that, you know, the, the, the class of the parasitic class yeah. uh, of people who are sucking on the public teat will probably figure out a way to reinvigorate themselves with but whoever the new... This, this, goes,
1: is. this goes back to talking about who next for Tory leader. I think, you know, I'm not a member of the Conservative Party, I don't have a vote. But I would favour someone who wasn't just prepared to leave with no deal, although I would rather we managed to strike a deal not just someone who was actually you know, um, willing to, to recognise that Theresa May has mishandled everything since the referendum really badly. I, I think I would want to vote for someone who, who basically took up the agenda that Don Cummings mm-hmm. and Steve Hilton, you know, both Whitehall advisers, both tried to make change in government when they had the opportunity to, both were willing to undermine their own career mm-hmm. advancement in order to ensure the public was served by good policymaking, mm-hmm. Both of them ultimately defeated by the Whitehall Blob. Mm-hmm. Um, on the way out, they said that there needs to be far-reaching radical change. I'd love to see a, a new Prime Minister come in yeah. and impose a sort of well, a, think, a Don think, Cummings agenda.
0: Like you, um, Douglas, I hoped on that fateful night when, against all the odds and in the teeth of so much entrenched interest, uh, managed to just win the EU referendum. I hope that we're going to see um, uh, 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 Boris Johnson in number 10, um, uh, Michael Gove as essentially the chief executive to his chairman, and Dominic Cummings as the chief of staff running Downing Street. And, God willing, we'll <laughs> yeah, yet, we, get that. That we might could, yet we could. happen. We can and still that, get that. It's just within our grasp. That is
1: a wonderful, wonderful note, optimistic, uplifting note to end on. Toby, thank you very much for coming in. I've really enjoyed it, and uh, it's been great to have you. Thank Thank you. Thank you.